Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. As I'm going to share in the next few minutes, my life has been shaped more than than anything else by three very important ladies. The Christ-likeness of my life, the call of my life, the character of my life. Three ladies are the ones that have come. And so I come this morning, I want to just boldly release a clarion call of your voice as a woman in the kingdom of God without hesitation and without reservation, because it is desperately needed. We've been in the midst of this message series at the church called Unveiled Love, and and what we're talking about is how Jesus reveals the fullness of who the Father has always been. And so this is a very special one for me because we kind of get to give a secret message. This is a message we get to give just right here on Saturday of an unveiled love of the Father's heart for His daughters. And so if you would with me this morning, I want to go, I just want to pray for us, and then we're going to go right from the start of the story. And don't worry, you can still eat while I pray. It's... The food is blessed. You are blessed. Jesus adores you. Father, I just thank you right now for the freedom and the grace. When you made us male and female, you did so with great desire and great design because there's something that we bring to one another that reveals and releases the fullness of your image on earth. And you don't want that to be hindered and you don't want it to be out of order. So I pray that in all things, Father, that there would be revelation and encouragement and grace. And I'm just trusting you. I know that your Holy Spirit can come and do what none of us can do. You know where we are on the journey, and you know for each woman in this room where they are and what you need to speak. So I pray that you'd come and release it. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 So we go to the very beginning of the story. The very beginning, it says that God spoke and he created light. And God himself is unapproachable light. So I find it so interesting that at the, the start of the story, God comes and he covers darkness with himself. And then it says that God creates the dry ground and the seas, the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the creatures of the air and the sea and the ground. And then he gets to the pinnacle of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to make a note right from the start here that when the Bible is talking here about man, what it's talking about is humanity, not male. When it says God created man, God created humanity, because we see in verse 27 that man isn't man until it's represented male and female. 
And so I want to say that any theology that would try to exalt one gender while silencing the other is a house divided and it cannot stand. It would be the definition of what is subhuman or inhumane. So any theology that takes one gender and elevates them while silencing the other would be an inhumane because he made us male and female. That's why in Genesis chapter 1, when it was just Adam, God said, it is not good for the male to represent my image and to walk alone. We can't release the image of God with one gender. And so God makes woman from Adam's rib. And I love the picture because the reason he created her from the rib was so she would stand completely beside him. Right here where we draw our breath, God didn't set up a hierarchy, he set up a partnership. In fact, the word he says in, in King James, it says the help meet, right? Which I always found is an interesting word. The word in Hebrew literally means completer. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. There's something the man is. There's places where he has strengths that protrude out, but there's places that he has weaknesses. And the woman is going to come and fulfill. And together they represent the image of God on earth. And so mankind is the pinnacle. But if that's true, then woman is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. Isn't that good? If man is art, then woman is the Sistine Chapel. If man is literature, woman is Shakespeare. If man is sports, then woman is Serena Williams, Michael Phelps, and Tom Brady. She's the completion, the crowning achievement. And so I want you to consider after hearing this beautiful charge, the confusion, when you as ladies turn over to the pages of the New Testament and you read this from the Apostle Paul. Women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, in 1 Timothy, he writes this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> Somebody hold mama's earrings. I'm going to knock you out. Mama says knock you out. Like, what is going on in these passages? These two passages, more than anything else, has sparked tons of debate in a popular view for years in the church that women have a role in the kingdom of God that is subservient to man. In fact, some circles would say that the role of a woman is to keep house, to keep quiet, and to obey male headship. The question I have to ask, is that actually what this is saying? And more importantly, is that the father's heart for his daughters? Or if we look at the context, is there something much greater going on? The idea that I want to share this morning, and I told you we're getting to the heart of Jesus, but I need to set the stage first. The brief big idea I want to give you is this, that Paul isn't advocating for the ongoing silencing of the majority of the body of Christ. I need to say that again because we need to get what's happening here. Paul in the New Testament isn't advocating for the ongoing silencing of the majority of the body of Christ. When I say majority, I mean a few things. One, right now, women, of professing Christians, women represent 55 to 60% of the professing global church. But that's not what I mean by majority. I mean, when you silence the voice of women, you haven't only silenced women, you've silenced everyone they would teach, train, disciple, and lead. And I started by telling you that the greatest thing that comes in my life, and I so appreciate my sister giving words of honor to me, if I'm going to sit in the seat, I'm going to tell you I'm the man I am today because of three very powerful women who knew who they were. 
When there's an ongoing silencing of women and they don't know their role or their place within the body and can't run, then we've silenced the majority of the body of Christ. And I need you to see something because here's what ends up being asked. We're a church, so I just want to say this. I know some are here as part of our church. Some are here visiting. And there's this question that's come. You've heard that this is Pastor Ruth and Pastor Aaron, and we've got Pastor Cindy. And so I've had some people, I went to Bible college and seminary, and I've had some people who love the Bible, and they've come to me and they've said, how can you do that? Because the Bible so clearly says that a woman can't be a pastor. And so I want to, for just a minute, get into what Paul's going to say. And the assumption has been this, that we, in the name of grace or in love, we just erase those verses from our Bible and ignore them. What I actually want to tell you is if you knew what it said, you'd find that no church actually follows what Paul said because something different was going on that was specific to a situation of that day. The word silent, when he says women are to remain silent, it literally means concealed and veiled that women are to be veiled. When he says they're not to speak, the definition in Greek that Paul wrote, right? Words matter. What did he say? He said, women are not to articulate any sound to declare their minds or disclose their thoughts. Here's my question. Do we really believe that Jesus tore down the veil in the temple just to put one back on his daughters? Do we believe that that's what he'd do? I'm going to tell you before I get to the heart of Jesus, seven reasons why I believe something much more glorious is going on here than this idea of a woman can't speak, a woman can't walk in this room, a woman can't sit at this table because it's out of order. The first one is this. So I'm going to go quick through seven. Can we go quick through seven? Is that okay? The first is this. That's not the practice of any modern church. Whatever is going on here, silent means there's no vocal projection of any type. What does it mean? It means what Paul is saying in this circumstance is that women are not to preach, prophesy, pray, give a testimony, sing on the worship team, or be the children's director, which is one that we do a lot of times. Is we'll call a woman to the role of a man, but we'll change the title and say that we're following the Bible. And I'm not being mean or nasty in that, but I just want to say when people come and say, well, you don't follow the Bible, I'm going to say, no, actually, you need to follow the Bible. Because if that's actually what you believe Paul is saying, what Paul said was not a woman can't be a pastor. He said a woman can't articulate any sound to disclose her heart within the church because it's shameful. My question is, do you think he meant that as the order of what needed to happen or perhaps was something else going on? So the first thing I say to my brothers who ask the question is, if that's what you believe, then we all need to be a lot stricter which means what's actually happening here today when Ruth got on a microphone and Aaron got on a microphone, Paul would say is shameful. Certainly, I don't think that's the case. Now, if this alone were the problem, somebody could come and say, well, that's it. We're just all compromising, right? But as we read the New Testament, this is what we see. There's this picture within the New Testament church that Paul contradicts himself, if this is true. The second is this. If Paul is saying that women have to be silent, then he's contradicting the clear commendation that he puts in all of his letters. Paul writes in his letters to a deaconess named Phoebe, a role of the church in an office. And then we're a church that talks a lot about the fivefold. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I love my Bible. And when I got in my Bible, this is what I found in the Greek words. Did you know that Paul specifically in his letters commends apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that are all women? He commends Junia, Who's an apostle? He says she's outstanding among the apostles. My question is, is she the mime apostle? Is she the apostle that never speaks? Right? Does she show up and build churches like this? He goes on. He lifts up prophetesses. Philip's daughters in Acts 29, it says, we're prophetesses in the church. He lifts up Udia, uh, Udia and Syntyche 
in Philippians, he calls his co-laborers, it literally means to stand alongside in the same authority that I have, and he calls them evangelists. He writes to Lydia, Nympha, and Chloe, and the church that meets in their house because they're fulfilling a pastoral function. And finally, and I would say most impressively, he refers to two teachers in the Bible, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. And again, just a little language nerd for a minute, that never happened in that day. You never listed the woman before the man in their culture unless she had the more dominant ministry. So everywhere in the church, Priscilla was known for teaching. The third reason I know this isn't what's going on is if it's true, then Paul is contradicting himself in the very same letter he wrote. The letter where he said a woman has to be silent and she can't speak because it's shameful. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.5, here's the order we need for women prophesying. You can go look it up. He speaks specifically for women prophesying in the church and says, this is how we do it in order. But if they can't talk, then that would be shameful. Further than that, he says in 1 Corinthians 14 that he wants all people to prophesy, to speak from God. The fourth one I'll give is this. If Paul is actually saying that women can't speak, it contradicts all of his other letters. It contradicts when he says that in Christ there's no male or female. And in fact, if it's true, it means that every time Paul talks about a gift that involves speaking to advance the kingdom, he intended it just for guys. We have a huge mess on our hands. Because then what it means is this. It means that we have to stand and say that women are free to use their gifts in the world, just not in the church. Florence Nightingale, the founder of Modern Nursing, desired to preach before she became a nurse. And this is what she was quoted saying. She said, I would have given the church my head, my hand, my heart, but she would not have them. My question is, do we believe that's God's design for fullness for his daughters? Or is something else going on? If Paul said that women can't walk co-equal with her brothers again, then it contradicts the birth of the church. I want you to look at this in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit fell in Pentecost. Did you know what it said was going to happen? It says this, and in the last days it shall be, by the way, Hebrews tells us we're in the last days because Jesus revealed them. God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall all prophesy. Number six, and I realize for most of this, I'm preaching to the choir. Some of you are like, no, we already know we can speak. Give me to, give me to Jesus. <laughs> but I want you to understand for, for my brothers, a lot of the things that I'm hitting very quickly, and I couldn't possibly give the, the time in an upcoming book called Reconstructing Dad. There's going to be a whole chapter on this that's going to pour it out. But I, I need to set the stage before I can say where Jesus calls for you to walk as his daughters and why we need your voice. The sixth problem I have is this. If we actually believe that God has set something up in the church to say, these rooms in the church, these places in the kingdom, women can't walk, I believe we've elevated the fall above the cross. So I want you to hear me. This idea that man is to be a ruler over women was a fruit of the fall, not the cross. See, when we fell, this is what he said in Genesis 3. He said, now women, you're going to desire not your God, but pleasing your husband, and he will rule over you. It was a fruit of the fall, but my Bible says that in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to demolish the enterprise of the enemy and to restore what was lost in Eden. 
That what he called us back to was, again, women standing next to man, taken from our rib, from our very breath, and co-equal partnership that is releasing the image of God on the earth. Now, I want to say this, because there's some that I hear, because a lot of history could be a pendulum where we swing back and forth. And there's been a pendulum for a long time of male leadership that has gone. All of the crusades, that was males alone representing the image of God. I'm not being critical, it's just true. There was a bunch of brothers running and not seeing what they didn't see. But today there's a voice that says, okay, we're in the hashtag Me Too movement, and some people are wanting to swing, swing the pendulum the other way and shame men and silence them. And I want to say, ladies, please don't ever do that. Because we'd be in the equal and opposite. We need to walk in grace and truth. If they've gone here and wanting to, we're going to fight for truth and holiness, and then they've assaulted people, and you're the voice of grace, coming and swinging this way moves us into the tolerance movement and washes away the truth that shall set us free. What we need in this day is a co-equal partnership of men and women walking together in mutual submission that will trust and honor one another with Jesus as our head. Now, there's a lot going on in the Bible, but I want to say this. I really believe the words of the Bible. I believe, so you know, because some people are like, then what the heck was Paul talking about? I believe there was an instance in the church where he said, hey, right now, if women speak in these churches, something shameful would happen that we can't let happen. I believe he was calling for a time in the church for some women to be entirely silent. Here's what was happening in the church. This is the very first time that men and women under the name of God and faithfulness were brought into worship together. See, there'd been separation in the temple. This is where the women come to worship. This is where the men come. And in the same way, Paul had watched when they brought the Gentiles in that it created a big mess. It was beautiful and it was right, but even Peter had to be given three visions from God to say, this is okay because it's about to get messy. You need to know that I'm in this. Now, Paul recognizes God is calling women in but in some of these regions, in fact, in Ephesus, for instance, they were a very progressive region. They were a women's feminism movement. They had a goddess named Diana. And Diana was the one that all the women followed. So in commerce, women led everywhere. Now suddenly they started to come into the church and they were wanting to disciple people and speak before being discipled. And Paul said every time they would go and lead, these women who actually were now out of order, they were wanting a woman's voice to be elevated in a, over a man just like it was out in the world. And they wanted to come and bring it in the church. And, and every time Paul was trying to get somewhere, he said, we're not moving where we need to move. So in this greeting, in this gathering, not everything we do, but when the teaching of the word is coming, husbands, I need you to tell your wives, right now they need to be completely silent. Why? And please hear me. I've heard some ladies get so mad at Paul. Paul was not anti-women. What Paul was actually doing was this. I see the dignity of my daughters. And when they come and speak in this way, what's happening is they're washing away their own dignity. So right now I need you to be silent so that all of my brothers can see that you belong at the table. This was not a forever call for what was supposed to be. So we have a theology. When people say, why do you allow women pastors? I say, because we're not going to elevate the fall above the cross. And I believe what God wanted at the very beginning was co-equal partnership. And the, the furthest one that I would say is this. Number seven is really where I want to camp for a minute this morning. The reason I believe Paul is not saying that women should be silent is because Paul would be opposing Jesus as the fullness of the father who has always been the liberator of his daughters. I want you to think about this in the story of Jesus for a little bit. How did Jesus approach women? Everywhere he went, he blessed and he empowered them. Everywhere he released this clarion call of their voice without hesitation, without limitation. Women who sat at Jesus' feet saw that there was no ceiling above their heads. 
It wasn't just that they had a seat at the table, but they were necessary. And so I want to do this because I want to give you a very practical talk. I'm going to ask everybody, if you could just put your hand on your heart for just a minute. Can we just make a declaration? Can you say, I'm necessary in the kingdom of God? Jesus sees me and he invites me in. And there's no place Jesus invites me that I don't want to go. Can we agree with that? All right. So I want to share three places Jesus is elevating his daughters right now. And some of these are going to be right where you are. And there are three ladies in Jesus' life, and they all are named Mary. Thank you, Jesus, for making that easy for us to remember. (laughs) The first was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want to tell you the picture that I see is this. Jesus is the fullness of the Father. So what does the story of Mary tell us? It tells us this, that the Father trusts his daughters to carry and nurture what he wants to birth on earth. The father trusts his daughters to carry and nurture what he wants to birth on the earth. If you think about the incarnation for a minute, it is absolutely crazy. The God of the universe trusted the mothering process of humanity to bear and raise him up in a way that he's God. And yet... He's going to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's God, but he's going to learn arithmetic. And he trusted the mothering process. There's this special anointing that is carried by moms that I've not seen anywhere else on the earth. Moms are natural nurturers and protectors. And I said at the start that three ladies have formed my life that I really want to honor. And the first one is my mom. I want to say this to you. Any compassion or presence. If you've ever been with me and you feel like, I feel like Pastor Chuck's actually present and he hears me and he cares and he's sensitive and he's tender. Any place you've seen me see or celebrate people, any place you've looked and you've said, he's not brash, he's safe, he's tender, he walks in grace. Any place that you've seen that there's a celebration of creativity and joy and humor, it's because of the tireless presence of a mom who believed in me and who embodied those things and who made it safe for me to grow up as me. I want to speak to moms for just a minute. Any moms in the room? That's good. It's Mother's Day coming. Moms, I want to say, I asked the Lord, what, is mom, what does he say about moms? He says, moms are incubators of identities. Whoo, that's good. Moms are incubators of identities. What does that mean? Our formative years are the biggest time that the identity of what we believe about God, ourself, where we're going and what life is going to be, is formed. I was a youth pastor for 20 years. In the first 18 years of life, that is the most formative time. And listen, there is no one. Hear me. I'm a father. I'm present. I love my children. What happens when they scrape their knee? They don't come to me. They run to mom. What happens when they've had a nightmare in the middle of the night? They run to mom. What happens when they want to buy some video game that dad's going to say no? They run to mom. Because though we have a strong relationship, there is no one the Father is trusting more to build and to shape the identities of his children than mothers. That's why I'm so passionate about saying, no, we have to open every door in the kingdom of God for his daughters to run free. I want you to think about this, mom, for just a minute. The fact that you get to not only carry, but to birth and shape and be an incubator of identities. What a privilege. What a privilege you get to carry. So I would ask this question with the first one. Who is the father positioned you to nurture or to protect or to raise up? And what image of his beauty is he wanting to birth through you? The second challenge I want to give this morning is this. 
It's with Mary of Bethany. And it's that the father trusts his daughters to lead his kids to intimacy and authenticity. The father trusts his daughters to lead his kids to intimacy and authenticity. Mary Bethany is one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. She shows up in three scenes in the Bible. In all of them, she is the picture of intimacy with God and authenticity. The first one, we know this story. Mary and, and her sister Martha. Martha was hosting this event for Jesus to come. And it was a huge honor. It was like the president of the United States coming to your house. Well, now half the country hates whoever the president is. It would have been somebody everybody wanted to come to their house. And Martha freaked out. Why? Because there was dirt on her floors and junk in her drawers, and she was painfully aware that her house was not worthy for the king of glory to enter in. And I think, man, what a prophetic picture of our anxiety and striving. Isn't that how it is a lot of times when Jesus says he wants to draw close to us, that he wants to give us grace? We're like, oh, but there's dirt on the floors and there's junk in the drawers, and I've got to, I got to fix it. I got to work it out. I got to get it there. And that was Martha. But do you remember Mary? Though the house was a mess, she recognized her offering could never be good enough. So instead, she just sat at his feet, hanging on every word he had to say. She was content not to be worthy enough just to be his. The second scene you see with Mary of Bethany is with her brother, Lazarus. He's at the point of death. And Jesus, it says, is in a city two miles away. Now, understand, I'm a runner. I run a 5K almost every morning, 3.1 miles. It doesn't take that long, and I'm not even that fast, okay? Two miles away is nothing for Jesus to be in that day where they walk miles upon miles. But the Bible says when he was told, hurry, the one you love is sick, that Jesus intentionally waited two more days in the place that he was. And Lazarus died. And when Jesus shows up in the city, Martha did what was expected of a good follower of God. It says that she ran out to him right away and she greeted him and she embraced him. And she said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know the father will give you anything you ask. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? There's just one problem. Martha didn't believe it. I can prove she didn't believe it because right after that, Jesus comes to her and he says, yeah, your, your brother's going to rise again. And she said, yeah, 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 I know in the resurrection. And she continued weeping. See, Martha wasn't walking in authenticity. She was just doing what a good Christian should do when life breaks your heart. Suck it up. Convince yourself there's a reason for it. Tell yourself and try to tell God, I'm okay. Then there's Mary. It says when Jesus showed up in the town, Mary wouldn't even come out to see Jesus. You know why? Because Mary was heartbroken and she was ticked. And finally, they said, the master is here and he's asking for you. And what I find fascinating is she says almost the same words as Martha, but with a very key difference. First of all, she did not run and embrace him. It says that she fell down before his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, period. I don't have anything else to say because I'm trying to figure out with all of my heart, if you're really as good as you say you are, and you really love me, and you really loved him, and you were really two miles away, I'm trying to figure out how in the world you could be that good, and I could be this broken. But nonetheless, where is she? I want you to note her proximity. She's at his feet. I want you to notice her attitude. It is authenticity. Scott, I don't understand, but there's nowhere else I'd rather be than here. Now, both Mary and Martha would be in awe five minutes later when their brother Lazarus comes back to life, and they see the goodness of God. There's one more scene with Mary of Bethany. It's in the last week of Jesus' life. 
He, she comes before him with this expensive perfume that cost a year's wages. And it says that she breaks it open at his feet. See, women of Mary's day had few advancement opportunities. What most biblical scholars believe is that what that represented, that gift, that would have been her currency, it was either a wedding dowry or an inheritance. Either way, it was a gift she was going to get once and only once. This was Willy Wonka's golden ticket, right? This is the lottery ticket that won everything. And what did she do? She broke it open at Jesus' feet. And this is what I find amazing about Mary of Bethany. Wherever you find her, she's in the same position. Whether she's learning or whether she's grieving or whether she's worshiping, she is going to live at Jesus' feet. I want to speak to you for a minute about why I'm so passionate about daughters in the kingdom of God fully knowing your voice. Because I walk with a lot of men, and we as men have a problem that I would call progress over presence. We walk with a to-do list that always has things we have to get done. In fact, many men, myself included, find way too much security in what we can accomplish and what we can acquire. I go to men's meetings. I got to tell you, there's a reason that I love this. And listen, I love hanging out with guys too. But sometimes I get in the bravado of some of these men's meetings and I'm like, just come on. Stop flexing your muscles. You're all strong. It's great. We're all wonderful. <laughs> because behind it, what I can hear is a lot of striving and a lot of hiding. Said there were three women that shaped my life. My second hero, I would say this hero has made me more like Jesus than anyone I know. And it's my wife, Jill. Jill is, without a doubt, the most selfless, patient, gracious, joyous, fully alive embodiment of love and joy I've ever seen. I'm in awe of my wife. Jesus said that all spirituality is, is found at sitting at his feet and abiding before him. And when God wanted to give an image of that, he gave an image of a daughter. And I want to say to Jill, who's here in the room, that's what she does in our family. See, I show up and I'm loving, but I do projects. I organize the pantry. I make sure the fridge is how it should be. I mow the lawn. Jill's the one who brings the presence of celebration to our family. We have five biological children and a foster child. And you know what? It's because of Jill that we all feel so seen and so celebrated. I've been a pastor now here over 20 years. Did you know there's not a single time that I stand to preach that Jill on her own and in her own way will come to me at some point right afterwards and speak the words of life that I needed to hear? Not just, good message, pastor. Not just that, but to say, hey, I know your heart and this is what I saw Jesus doing through what you did. I feel so celebrated. I feel so seen. Jill radiates security and peace because Jill, more than anybody I know without trying, you can't put it in her schedule. She just lives at Jesus' feet. She just has a heart of security that I'm telling you, you as daughters carry and we as men need. So the question I want to ask is, where is the father inviting you to be present? And where is he elevating your voice that as you walk in undistracted worship that you can call us to be present over progress? The last one is this, and then I want to pray for you. One more Mary and one more way the father's trusting his daughters. And this is Mary Magdalene. And it said, the father trusts his daughters to preach his kingdom. 
The father trusts his daughters to preach his kingdom. Do you know, I'll give a little Bible quiz for just a minute. I'm going to actually see. We're going to get some crowd participation. Anybody, it can't be Pastor Aaron because we've had this conversation too many times. Does anybody know who the first revivalist was in the ministry of Jesus? The first person who brought out a revival in the ministry of Jesus. You should have a clue based on where we are today. It was the woman at the well. John chapter 4. And this is what I want you to get. The first revivalist, listen, was not just a woman, but it was a foreign woman. And our God does nothing without cause. I just want to say this in love to people who say to me, women can't preach. Women shouldn't preach. I'd say then apparently Jesus didn't get the memo. Because the very first time he wanted it to be preached to the Gentiles who he was, he sent. His 12 disciples were there with him. He sent them all the way to get lunch. He was like, this next move I'm going to do, don't need you. Take a break. I'm going to take the Samaritan woman that everybody else, including herself, has written off. And she was the messenger that broke out a two-day revival in that land. After the resurrection in John chapter 20, do you know who the first person was to preach the resurrection? It was Mary Magdalene. He raised him once again. It says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. Mary had already been there. And Jesus very intentionally, who again does not do anything without cause, he came and I want you to see this picture. I want you to see a lens and I want to encourage you. Don't proof text the Bible. Read the narrative. The garden here where Mary Magdalene saw Jesus was taking us all the way back to the garden where God made his daughter and brought it up next to the man and said, you're co-equal, run. And what does he say to her? I'm alive. Go tell your brothers. Go tell your brothers. Go preach to your brothers the goodness. Why? Because they already know their voice in the kingdom. But I've elevated your voice back. It's no longer they're going to rule over you. No, you're going to walk in a co-equal partnership that you lay down your lives for one another, that you serve one another. And I want you to carry my kingdom. Do we really believe that Jesus would show up at this point and say, hey, Mary, here's this deal. I'm going to do this cool thing just this once. I'm going to elevate the voice of a woman. But after this, when I send the Holy Spirit and it's going to be better, there's going to be all kinds of hoops you've got to jump through. That I'm going to give gifts to somebody like Pastor Aaron. That I'm going to give her a gift to teach and preach. Can we say amen? amen? But then I'm going to tell her that she can't do that in the church. Or that if she does that, that she's only welcome on the platform if her husband comes with her. Did Jesus really show up and say, I'm just going to give you this one blip? Or was he reestablishing the complete restoration of humanity, male and female together? He's given you gifts and a voice and a heart because the world needs what you see. The world needs what you bring. I want you to know, ladies, that Jesus delights in your voice and he wants no more obstructions. He wants you to join and to tell your brothers. So there was one last hero that I had. My dad's mom, my Mima. I have never seen more power and love packed into a hundred pound, five foot frame in my life. For my Mima, Jesus was her everything. He was the fire in her bones. She devoured his word. When I opened her Bible, there were more of her words and notes in the Bible than there were of the words in the Bible itself. I remember spending summers with my Mima, and for hours she'd be counseling friends on the phone and praying, giving them perspective. And goodness gracious, when my Mima would begin to pray, the power of heaven would fall. And whoa, could she preach. Many in my Mima's day said that she couldn't because she was a female. 
But there was a denomination in South Carolina that ordained her. And she didn't shy away and she walked through. And I watched for the rest of the years that many people raised eyebrows at her. She walked in judgment all the days of her life. And did you know much of that judgment didn't come from men? It came from other daughters. You know what I watched though as a young boy? My Mima never took her eyes off Jesus. She had no time to be offended or to argue because she knew who she was and she knew whose she was. So she refused to allow the narrowness of the prejudice of others to deter her from the God who consumed her and the people she was called to release his love to. Remember, it was years later, I was at Bible college and I showed up and they said, listen, you need to know that miracles aren't for today. They don't really show up. And things like the gift of tongues, they don't exist. But I knew they were wrong. You know why? Because I'd been with my Mima. They said, women can't preach. I knew that was wrong because I'd been with my Mima. And when I was with her, I didn't just see that she could do it. I watched the pleasure of God radiate from her and transform many people, including me. If you've ever wondered and you're like, man, when Chuck gets to Jesus, he just can't sit still. There's a fire in his bones. Do you know, want to know why I got it? Because I had a Mima who decided that the father had called her and she wasn't going to hide anymore, but she was going to tell her brothers and her sons and her grandsons. So for me, when it comes to the question of what is a voice of a woman in the kingdom of God, I can't not be passionate about it because I wouldn't be sitting in this seat without those three women knowing who and whose they are. And I want to say to you this morning that who you are and what you see is so needed. And the Jesus that is raised from the dead has not obstructed other veils to say, you can't come in this room, you can't come any closer, you can't come without your husband. He said, no, I've lifted you up next to him. And now and forever, what I want you to do is run as who you are and where they don't see it, go tell your brothers. So with that, I would love the joy of just taking a moment to pray for you. Can we pray? Even with your eyes closed, I just want to ask this question. Are there any places that there are limitations that you've put upon yourself in the kingdom of God? Places that you've had a passion or a desire and others have discouraged you from fully embracing Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or maybe there are rooms you haven't even allowed yourself to look in because you said that wouldn't be holy and it wouldn't be okay. I want to ask the question, where is it time that God is saying, I've gifted you in this way and I've shown you this and I'm opening this door because I need you alongside your brothers. Your voice and your heart in the kingdom of God is too important because there are our sisters and brothers and sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons who need you being fully you, fully abiding with him. So, Father, right now, I just want to thank you so much for your daughters, for my sisters. I want to thank you for the life they possess. And I'm asking right now, in Jesus' name, that any place where they have felt limited, any place where they have felt discouraged, any room they felt they couldn't walk in, any place that there's been a ceiling over their head or a veil over their face or a room they've come in wondering, do I have a seat at the table? I pray that you would show them not only do you have a seat, but your place is necessary. I'm calling you forward, daughter. I ask that you would lift burdens. I ask that you would speak truth. Because the church needs your daughters. Fully alive. Fully aligned. My brothers need their sisters. 
Our city needs your daughters. The kingdom needs daughters. The world needs the daughters. And there is no ceiling and no veil. You have a seat at the table. Daughters of the king, I thank you. I thank God for you. I bless you. And I ask for the power of God to just come and to empower you.